All right, let's dive into Acts chapter 19. We'll start as we always do with the brief outline of the chapter on your handout, and then we'll go verse by verse through the book. So chapter 19 of the book of Acts is about Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus during what is now his third missionary journey. He first goes to the synagogue in Ephesus where he expounds on his initial message that Jesus is indeed Messiah. After a while, many agree with him, but there are those who don't agree with him and they harass him and they harass the other believers and so the other believers leave. Uh, Paul then begins to teach in a lecture hall. He goes out into the marketplace with this uh, gospel and in that lecture hall, He performs many miracles, and many people are converted to Christianity. Now, there are some Jewish exorcists who try to use Jesus' name to cast out demons, but they're unsuccessful and are themselves attacked by a possessed man. The incident causes many people to fear the Lord and the demonic, and the name of the Lord Jesus is magnified. And then finally, a riot is raised by Demetrius, a silversmith who makes shrines or idols to the goddess Artemis or Diana uh, because he fears Paul's teaching will hurt his business. The town clerk manages to calm down the mob. There's always a mob, isn't there? Uh, the town clerk manages to claim, uh, calm the mob and uh, end the immediate threat to Paul and the other uh, Ephesian Christians. All right, so that's the outline of the chapter. Now let's dig in and go verse by verse, starting with verses 1 and 2. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So the proper translation uh, for verse 2 is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Uh, Which most translations, most Bible versions translate it that way. Um, But the reason why Paul asks the Ephesian Christians, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, is because... They were disciples of Apollos. Now, if you go to the previous chapter, verse 24, we're introduced to Apollos, and we talked a bit about him last week. Apollos was a Jew, a native of Alexandria, and he came to Ephesus. He was eloquent, and Dr. Luke says that he was competent in the Scriptures, and he had been instructed in the ways of the Lord he was fervent in spirit. He was charismatic. He, um, he was a great speaker. He was very compelling. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so that's key here, because these Ephesian disciples who had only sat under the preaching of Apollos only heard things concerning Jesus, but they didn't hear the gospel of Jesus because the gospel of Jesus includes 
teaching on the indwelling Holy Spirit. In fact, the first gospel message by Peter back in Acts chapter 2 was, after they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke of, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters prophesy, old, uh, young men uh, see visions, old men dream dreams, male and female servants uh, will, will prophesy. And so this idea of outpouring and indwelling Holy Spirit goes hand in hand with gospel preaching. So I believe that they didn't hear the gospel message. They believed concerning Jesus. They received John's baptism. I mean, think of this. John is the one who prepared the way for Jesus. John even said when Jesus came to be baptized, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But yet, while John was in prison and being persecuted, he sent his disciples to Jesus and asked, are you the one? And so, though John knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, what did he not have? He did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He died before the Spirit came. Uh, and so he didn't see the resurrected Christ, and he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening with these, with these Ephesian believers, these Ephesian disciples. They're hearing Apollos. They're hearing about a repentance. They're hearing about a new kingdom, a Messiah, they even believe that that Messiah is Jesus, but they haven't gone to the next step to make their belief a living faith. What does James say is required to have a living faith? Works, not works for salvation in that you can't earn it by anything you can do, but the work of offering your life like Abraham offered offered Isaac, and by opening a door, like Rahab opened a door to the Jewish or the Hebrew spies. When James says your faith without works is dead, that's what he means. Unless you open the door of your heart and let Jesus in, unless you offer your life to him, you aren't truly born again. People who are born again are filled with the Spirit immediately, as we will read in the next few verses. So these Ephesian believers believed the teaching of Apollos concerning Jesus, and they had the baptism of John, but they had not yet heard the true gospel. And so here Paul goes in verse 3 and 4 to explain the true gospel and what they must do. He asked them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with uh, the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. So Paul explains to them that they must believe in Jesus to be saved. And you've heard me say this recently. I think there's a little distinction there. And the heart of that message, you must believe in Jesus, is probably better said, you must believe Jesus. A lot of people believe in Jesus, that he existed, that he's real. But do they believe him? Do they believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him? 
Do they believe those things? Do they believe that he is the narrow gate? And that the only way to eternal life is through that gate. And so I believe that when uh, Paul preached that they must believe in Jesus, that what he was preaching is that they must believe Jesus. And you've heard Paul preach in this book, and you've read his letters, I'm sure, and you can come away with that same thing. Paul says in Romans that you must confess, in your mouth, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Well, believing in your heart is not just saying it in your head. It's believing it in your innermost being. For it to get into your innermost being, you have to believe Jesus. You have to believe what he said and what he did. Not just in him, but believe him. And so that's what these Ephesian uh, disciples are now confronted with. Are you going to believe Jesus? Verse 5 tells us, that on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. The experience of the Ephesian Gentiles the experience that they have when receiving the Holy Spirit is the exact same experience that the Jewish believers had in Jerusalem about 30 years before on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came upon them, they were filled, and they began to speak in other tongues, and they prophesied. This episode is an extension of Pentecost and the Pentecostal experience to yet another group of people. It indicates that Christ's commission is being fulfilled when he said uh, in Matthew 20, 28, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he said in Acts 1.8 um, that you would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, then into Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. What's amazing about Jesus' um, great commission and um, him telling his disciples where they would be witnesses for him is not just that the gospel would move geographically, but that it would move demographically as well. So, it started in Jerusalem with people that were like-minded. And then it went out from there into the provinces. So it wasn't just localized to one city. It wasn't just going to be an urban movement. It was going to span out. But then it was going to go into Samaria. That's into the northern reaches of Israel. And Samaria was the capital city of the, the northern kingdom, so the ten tribes to the north that... Um, were eventually dispersed and never returned to Israel after their exile in Assyria. The two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, they were exiled to Babylon, but they came back. But the northern kingdom, when they were exiled to Assyria, they never did return. And so that's why there was this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. 
Jesus tells two parables. Well, he tells one parable about the good Samaritan, and then he has an interaction with a Samaritan woman. And both of those things were taboo and controversial, to say the least, because these were people that were similar to us, but yet they were outsiders or considered outsiders to the Jerusalem Christians. But then it goes beyond that to the ends of the earth. It goes then to Antioch. It goes into the empire. Antioch was a completely Gentile city. We, we learned through the book of Acts that Antioch was the place where they were first called Christians. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish Christian church. And Antioch was the center of the Gentile Christian church. It was from Antioch that Paul went on his first missionary journey with Barnabas, and then on his second with Silas, and now he's on his third. And he keeps coming back to Antioch. I've gone on a big rabbit trail here uh, just to tell you that the Holy Spirit is moving out from Jerusalem, and it's it's going everywhere. The gospel is going everywhere, and the Spirit is filling everybody who is believing the gospel in fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so that's why I believe, and this is the fourth and final time that you'll hear this experience described in the book of Acts, that they believed, they were uh, hands were laid on them, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. That happens four times in the book of Acts. This is the fourth and final time. Uh, and Dr. Luke includes it to show us that the gospel is moving out, that the Great Commission is being fulfilled, the gospel is being preached, and people are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Just like they were on Pentecost in Jerusalem, so now they're being filled in Ephesus, and everywhere the gospel is preached, and people truly believe they are filled with the Spirit. Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit as the seal and the promise of our salvation. As Pentecostals, we also believe that the infilling of the Holy Spirit uh, comes with the ability to uh, operate in the gifts of the Spirit and to have power for life and ministry. Uh, many Christians today have put that aside. They say that ceased when Revelation chapter 21 was uh, finished and John put his final amen on that book. I don't believe that. Um, Paul said that the gifts wouldn't pass away until the perfect has come. I'm looking around today and it doesn't seem too perfect to me. It doesn't seem like the perfect has come. Therefore, we still need the power of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and of course, that's what we're all about. And so, again, big long rabbit trail to make a small point, but I hope it was at least interesting to you as it was to me. I found that very fascinating uh, this week when I was studying that these four encounters happen. The gospel preached, believed, hands were laid on people, Holy Spirit comes upon them, filled, speak in tongues, prophesy. All right. Which goes back to something we often say, God is no respecter of persons. He gave that gift to the Jerusalem Christians and to every subsequent group of people that were saved uh, after. And I believe he's still doing it today. All right, let's keep reading then. Uh, verse 5 we read. Let's go to verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, I already read that. Yeah, verse 8. Here we go. 
I, I went on such a tangent there, I forgot where I was. <laughs> Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul here again is going back into the synagogue. In a previous chapter, he said he was done with that because they kept persecuting him. In fact, in the previous chapter, he has a run-in uh, with the people of the synagogue there in Corinth, the Jews there. But here in Ephesus, he's in the synagogue again. And what does he come up against? Stubbornness. Verse 9 says, When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. So Paul said, listen, we don't need to put up with this. Um, I came in here because I figured you would be sympathetic to this message. You've been waiting for a Messiah. I'm telling you he's here uh, or that he came. And now he's dwelling in us by his Holy Spirit. If you don't want to hear it, if you want to continue in stubbornness and unbelief, then we'll take the message elsewhere. And so Paul takes the congregation with him, and they went to the Hall of Tyrannus, which was a local lecture hall. It was like a town hall sort of thing, or a conference room, if you will, where many people would meet and have gatherings. And so Paul went there daily to preach the gospel. Verse 10 says, This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now that's saying something. Paul, in his two-year ministry, preached to all the residents of Asia. Now, we know Asia is an enormous continent right now. Uh, the Asia that's being referred to here is not that Asia. Uh, it's a province of the empire. It's a big province. Lots of people in it but it's not that entire continent. But that's not to say, or that's not to diminish this in any way. God gave Paul such favor and influence that it says in the Bible that all the residents, not some, not most, but all the residents heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I want to stop there and say, uh, you know, some people wonder about the people who've never heard the gospel. What, what happens to them? You know, it's a question maybe you've been asked by, by a seeker. Well, what about all the people who never heard? Well, we read here that God is so concerned about his gospel going forth that he gave one man the opportunity to speak to all the residents of an entire province. And then Paul would later say in Romans chapter 1 that what can be known of God is visible in the natural world. The, the world, the, the natural world, the creation proclaims the invisible attributes of God. It, creation preaches the gospel if you listen to it, if you look at it. And so no one is without um, fault and everyone is accountable because everybody who lives in this natural world with eyes to see or ears to hear, with some sense of what is going on in the world can know God simply through that. But I think it's amazing. God is just so faithful. He is so committed to this great commission 
that Paul has an opportunity uh, in, in two years to speak to all the residents of a province. All right, let's keep going. Verse 11 through to 16. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Let's stop there for a moment. Whenever I notice it, I like to point it out in the book of Acts, whenever I notice the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation, I like to just take a moment and point it out. And so we know that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is miracles. And the Bible says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So when Paul writes uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians that we're one body with many parts and it's one spirit and all the gifts are resident in the spirit who is God uh, and he works and apportions those gifts as he wills, uh, he's writing that because that's what he lived. He experienced it here in Ephesus. Uh, for those two years, he, God was doing incredible miracles, extraordinary things through Paul's hands so that even uh, handkerchiefs or aprons that had, been, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits were cast out of them. So there were miracles and some of those miracles included healing of the sick and the casting out of demons. Um, remember Jesus said that he had all authority in heaven and on earth, and he had all authority over the nat natural realm and the supernatural realm. And he said that he was giving it to his disciples, not just the 12 apostles, but to all, I believe, who would be filled by the Holy Spirit. That if the sp same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, we have resurrection power available to us. It's present in us. And should the Lord will to use us in that way, then we ought to be ready, willing, and able to allow him to, to not quench the spirit or grieve the spirit by saying, no, God, you, you got it all wrong, not me. I can't do that. Yes, you can. You're, you're no worse than Saul of Tarsus was. I promise you, if anyone was wicked, evil, and vile, it was Saul of Tarsus, and yet God used him to do extraordinary things. Because, again, as I said, and, and we often say it, God is not a respecter of persons. If you're willing, he'll use you. And he used Paul in incredible ways. Verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists overtook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Isn't that amazing? Then uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I mean, Dr. Luke mentions this, this 
um, experience or this happening. Uh, he doesn't go into a lot of detail, but I can only imagine what happened when these men were spoken to by this evil spirit and then were indwelled by this evil spirit, overpowered and mastered by it, to the point where they left the house they were in naked and wounded. I mean, I guess your imagination could run wild as to what happened in that house and what it looked like. But I say it in jest, but also in seriousness, that you don't mess with the demonic. You don't go at the demonic in your name or uh, in your strength, but only in the name of Jesus, his precious and powerful blood, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I find it so interesting, these itinerant Jewish exorcists, that's a polite way of saying that um, they made their living at, at exercising evil spirits. And, and you can imagine that evil spirits were running rampant in the first century Roman Empire. At this point, the Roman Empire is not Christianized whatsoever. Its emperors are evil and wicked and themselves possessed by evil spirits. And so these evil spirits are running rampant. They're having a heyday. And so um, these itinerant exorcists saw um, a gap in the market and said, okay, well, we're religious. We believe in uh, a God that is greater than Satan and, and the, the spiritual forces of evil. So let's, um, let's cast out demons. And so they made a living at it. And then they showed up where Paul was and saw Paul doing it and probably doing it way differently and definitely doing it in a different and more powerful name. And so they said, all right, let's, uh, let's try Paul's approach. And I just think it's so funny. I adjure you in the, in the G, uh, sorry, by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. They don't have resurrection power. They're not indwelled with the Holy Spirit. They can't proclaim the name of Jesus against these evil spirits. And so they learn really quick that uh, you don't mess with the demonic unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. So again, we have this word all. Paul, Paul preached to all the residents of Asia, and then this instance, this experience, became known to all the residents of an entire city. And Ephesus is no small city. It's a major, major city. Uh, just like Corinth uh, was the sin center of the empire, and Athens was the religious center of the empire, Ephesus was the economic center of the empire. It's a huge city. And so this incident becomes known to all the residents of the city, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, that word or that little sentence or phrase, and fear fell upon them all, reminds me of what happened back in chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. 
Um, great fear came upon all of them and a great reverence for the Lord and his name. And now another thing happens, another uh, supernatural anomaly, uh, something that we don't read often throughout the book, that demons left the one host and entered into the person that was trying to cast them out. I'm reminded of when the disciples tried to cast a demon out and they couldn't get it out, and they went to Jesus and said, why can't we do it? And he said, this one comes through prayer and fasting. But that, that demon didn't leave the host and go into them. It just stayed in the host until Jesus cast it out. But here we, we see people who aren't believers trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And the demon leaves the one host and goes into them and wreaks havoc on them, uh, humiliates them, and uh, wounds them. And so this instance, news spreads quick. And the result was fear or reverence fell upon them all. Fear for the, for the apostle, fear for his message, and fear for reverence for the disciples. And then the name of the Lord was extolled. Now that's not a word you see common in, in the Bible. It happens a few times in the Psalms. Very rarely, uh, there's probably, I'm speaking, I'm assuming when I say this. This may be one of the only time, times, if not the only time, that word is mentioned in the New Testament. It's the first time I remember reading it in this book, for sure. And the word extol means to lavishly praise. It's not the same as exalt. Exalt means to lift up and to make known, to elevate, to take Jesus and his name and, and to lift it up above the circumstance or the situation so that people can see him. Similar to when he said, when I am high and lifted up, when I'm exalted, I'll draw all people unto me. Well, this word extol is similar but different. It means to lavishly praise. And so, this instance causes fear and reverence to come upon the people and to lavishly praise and worship the name of Jesus, which says to me a couple of things, but the main thing it says to me is that when the gifts of the Spirit are in operation, and remember, one of them is the casting out of demons, it brings great glory and honor to Jesus. That's why we want to be available to be used in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Not for our own glory. We always pray it when we, when we ask, God, not to us, not for our glory, but that you would be glorified, that you would be worshipped through this. And so here again, this gift of the Spirit is in operation, the casting out of demons, and the result, Jesus is worshipped lavishly. Uh, let's pick up now at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. What does that mean? Well, they were certainly confessing their sins one to another, which is one of the reasons why Paul, in his letters, admonishes us to confess our sins one to another. But I believe they were also divulging their pagan practices and their idolatry. Remember, these are relatively new converts to Christianity. Sometimes old habits die hard. 
These people would have only known idol worship. In fact, uh, we'll read about uh, a riot here in a moment because Ephesus was known for the worship of one particular god, small g, and there was uh, an idol maker, many idol makers in Ephesus. So they, they knew, idol, knew idolatry and they practiced idolatry and they probably had idols in their house. And so they realized the connection between the demonic and idolatry. And I believe they came to Paul and they started confessing and saying, you know, what do we do with this? And I'm sure the answer was, you need to get that out of your house, get it out of your life. You can't serve two masters. Uh, You can't serve God and idols. There will be no other gods before him, uh, before Yahweh. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, and what did they do? They burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail. I remember growing up in youth group. Maybe you did the same thing. I don't know how old this practice was, but we used to have like book burning services or CD burning services or whatever. Or maybe you were at an altar service somewhere and and someone got saved and they left their pack of smokes on the altar or uh, whatever it might be. They they laid that down. And that's what we see here. Uh, They were confronted with the power of the Holy Spirit and they realized, wow, there's something in my life, in my home, something that I do that I got to surrender And that's exactly what they did. They brought their magic art books, their books of witchcraft and spells, and they brought them and burned them. It's amazing. These were valuable books. I'm sure they could have sold them. But they were so convinced that it was wrong and it was a sin against God that they didn't want anyone else to have these books either. And so they burned them. They got rid of them. 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. But what happened as a result? See, nothing, you don't do anything without a result uh, when you do it for the Lord and in the power of his Holy Spirit. And so that's what they did here. And what was the result? The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. Prevailed over what? Prevailed over the darkness. Prevailed over the, the forces of evil and uh, wickedness, and witchcraft, and idolatry. God's word always prevails over these things. Uh, When God's people will come out and be separate from the world, uh, it, it testifies. It testifies to the world around us. And that's what they were doing here. Let's keep going. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also go and see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Paul decided to stick around for a while. Paul ultimately stayed in Asia and in, in the city of Ephesus, as we read in our um, 
in our opening summary. What does it, what does it say there? What did I... How long did he stay? Well, I think it was just around three years. Isn't that the first sentence? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Paul was in Ephesus for around three years. And let's do, let's do a cross-reference there to 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. It's really neat to read um, this historical account of Paul's missionary journey and his church planting, and then to go and read the letters that he wrote to those churches. And so in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, uh, Paul talks about deciding to stay in uh, Ephesus. Uh, he, well, actually, let's start at verse 5, because he writes to them and plans to visit. So if I'm not mistaken, I believe he's writing to the Corinthians while he's in Ephesus, because he says he wants, to, he wants to visit after passing through Macedonia. And we just read that he sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia. So these, these things are kind of happening simultaneously or around the same period of time. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, I, won't, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. I intend to pass through and perhaps will stay with you, even spend the winter with you, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want you to see now just in passing. He says, I want to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. Pretty amazing. So we've talked about this wide door open for Paul. He's preaching. All the residents of Asia here is preaching. He casts out demons, and all the residents of Ephesus hear about it. And so here we are reading in the book of Acts, Dr. Luke's summary of what took place, and now we're getting a, a deeper insight into what Paul was thinking, doing, and saying during this time. He tells the Corinthians, I want to stick around with you for a while. Remember, I always call the Corinthians the messed up church. They were in the sin center of the empire. They had the most baggage. They are corrected the most of any of the churches that Paul wrote to. And so that's why I believe Paul says, I don't want to just pass through. I'm going to Macedonia, but I don't want to just pass through. I need to stay with you for a while. i got to teach you some things. And, and, and I love what he says here. A door of effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. And You've heard me say this, I think, many times, um, that 2023, if anything for liberty, it's a year of open doors, and, and doors opening before us, and walking through open doors and seeing what's on the other side. Sometimes I feel that we've walked through a door or we've, we've, we've looked into a room and said, okay, that's amazing. I don't think we're ready for that yet. Or maybe we've walked into a door. Maybe you've done this in your own life. I've done it in my own personal life. Walked through a door of opportunity and said, yeah, uh, this, was, uh, this was only for a small time. Or maybe, you know, I walked through this door and I wasn't quite ready to, to face what was on the other side of this door. So let me go back into the hall and get powered up and go back through. And so here Paul uses that same kind of language when he says that a, a door of effectiveness has been opened to me. But we need to know that as a church and in our own personal lives, if God's opening doors, 
and we're walking through them, there will be many adversaries. Because it's not the way we would draw it up. We would think, okay, well, if God opens the door for us, then there'll be smooth sailing. No one will be upset with me. No one will second guess me. Everybody's just going to be yes and amen. Well, there are many adversaries when we walk through the doors that the Lord opens, but he always gives us strength to face it. Now, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says there's many adversaries. Now let's read about one such instance where he faces an adversary. In verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Isn't this amazing how it all lines up? For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, or of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen of the city, the idol makers. Uh, these he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, you know from this business that we have our wealth. What business? Idol making. Lots of idols, lots of witchcraft. We just read about how they burned all their witchcraft books. This is really uh, pre prevalent in this part of the empire, this idolatry. And so he's saying to all the idol makers, listen, guys, we've made a lot of money making idols. We have lots of wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So let's look at the effectiveness of Paul. Going back to that previous verse in verse 10. Paul continues for two years. And all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And look what this idol maker says. They heard it, and almost all were persuaded. That's effective ministry. They all heard it, and almost all of them were persuaded by Paul. Now contrast that to, you know, to Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 17. And some people say that Paul was a failure when he preached at the Areopagus or Mars Hill in Athens because it said only a few came. Well, I don't think he was a failure at all. Uh, but contrast that then with his ministry in Ephesus, just a few cities over when he leaves Athens and goes to Corinth and now to Ephesus. All the people in a province here, almost all are persuaded. And that's not the words of Paul speaking evangelistically. That's the words of an idol maker saying almost everyone has been persuaded by Paul to give up their idols because Paul's saying that gods made by hands are not gods. Verse 27. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come to um, disrepute, but also that the temple of the goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. Uh, this god Artemis, also known as the goddess, or the goddess Artemis, also known as the goddess Diana, uh, was no small goddess, was not just a minor goddess. She was one of the big ones, one of the main ones. So much so that probably every household had an idol. And that's why these idol makers were so wealthy. And Paul persuaded almost everyone to get rid of them. 
And when they, the craftsmen, the idol makers, heard this, they were enraged. And they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They started trying to extol their god, small g. And so the city was filled with confusion. Confusion is always the result of trying to worship more than one god. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the uh, Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Maybe because they thought he was going to be killed there. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing and some another thing, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together at all. Isn't that amazing? Talk about a mob and a mob mentality and social contagion. And, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. That's what was happening here as a... One singular event. Paul was proclaiming Jesus and the gospel and the the infilling of the Holy Spirit and that there's only one God. And then these idol makers start proclaiming, great is Artemis. Uh, And so people are confused. And so they want to put Paul on trial and they want to put his companions on trial. And so they just start rushing to the theater. They don't even know why they're going. But they're following the crowd. Mob mentality. Uh, They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't even know why they were there. Uh, Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, that's a worship service to the wrong God, but they had their worship service. Two hours. We had a worship service for two hours. We think we had a great time, wouldn't we? And, and they felt the same way. They were there for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were confused. Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted, quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. Charged by who? The empire. The Roman empire. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, they dismissed the entire assembly. So he says, listen, you can't deny that we have the temple of Artemis here in the city. You can see it. I'm sure you could see it from the theater. That 
temple holds what they call the sacred stone that fell from the sky. It's there. These men aren't saying that that's not true. They're making their case that there's only one God, the God of Israel, Yahweh God. And that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He said there's really, there's really no reason to charge them. And then he says, listen, we're in danger of, of, of rioting here today and being charged with rioting. We don't want the uh, Roman army showing up here to put down this, this protest. I mean, we, we danced around the edge of tyranny uh, a couple of winters ago with the, with the convoy. But I mean, this was real tyranny. Like if, if uh, the emperor wanted to put down this riot... There would be no negotiating. He would send the army in, and they'd likely flatten that place. And so this town clerk, in his wisdom, said, listen, guys, if you've got actual charges to bring against these men, the courts are open, and there's judges and juries. Otherwise, you're just going to have to, basically, I, said, I, I, would, I would paraphrase, you're going to have to agree to disagree and let them go on their way. And I believe this was God. Um, providing favor and safe passage for Paul to continue his work in ministry. Um, that was going to come to an end. We know that full well. Paul doesn't live forever. Uh, he meets his demise, and we'll get to that eventually. But we've come to the end of chapter 19, and let me just encourage you with uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians that he wrote to them around this time. The Lord is opening doors of great effectiveness for us. We heard testimony about that in the prayer room tonight. And over the last year or two years, God's opening doors. Go through those doors and know that there will be many who oppose you, but greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world.